Welcome back to another edition of the Cool Schools podcast. My name is Mike McShane, and I'm Director of National Research at EdChoice. Today on the podcast, we have Brian Daigle of Baton Rouge, Louisiana's Sequitur Classical Academy. This is another hybrid homeschooling program, as many have been featured this season on the Cool Schools podcast. It's an interesting one, whereas a lot of the other programs that we've talked to go for full days, but a smaller number of days a week. So they might go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday. This is more of a half-day program. It goes four days a week from 745 until 1230. Brian's a really interesting guy. He is deeply, deeply passionate about classical education. We're going to spend a lot of time digging into that, but also talking about their particular manifestation of hybrid homeschooling, why they made some of the decisions that they did, and the benefits that they've been able to reap from that. Looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. So without further ado, here is Brian Daigle, the headmaster and a teacher at Sequitur Classical Academy in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Perhaps the best place to start is at the beginning. So how did Sequitur Classical Academy get started? I never thought that I'd be a teacher. (laughs) Education was not in my purview for a long, long time. And I went through undergrad and fell backwards. I like to say, into teaching, my first teaching job at about 23. And through a few years of being in education, I had some friends provide me a book on classical Christian education. And I had been asking some questions in terms of what I was seeing, the school where I was teaching, broader discussions with administrators and teachers. And so shortly after I received kind of my first introduction into what's called classical Christian education. I went and studied for a few years, and my wife and I said, we want to get back to Baton Rouge. We had left, kind of go off and pursue some graduate work in classical ed. And really, we said, well, we're not going to move back to Baton Rouge unless there is a classical school there. And then we said, okay, how do we do that? (laughs) And so thankfully, there, there were enough families at the time. This was back in 2012. There are enough families who were kind of asking the same question. Um, Do we have enough interest and enough resources and enough support to get a private, independent, classical Christian academy off the ground? And so back in 2012, early 2012, we held our first informational meeting and really just said, here's our plan. Here's the class schedule. Here's the distinctive philosophy of classical Christian ed. And here's some tuition details and um, basic policy and procedures. And uh, and we just gave a number. We said, we need this many kids to get going. And if we have that, you know, by March 15th or April 1st or whatever, then we'll launch it the following fall. And we did. And so we had enough students. We had more than enough. I had to hire on a, a second teacher. And we've just gone from there. We've grown. And it's been a, it's been a really great thing to be a part of. And it's, it's humbling and it's encouraging all at the same time. How many students do you serve now? We currently have a little over 150 students. So we started in 2012 with 32 students and two teachers, and we're at a little over 20 teachers and uh, over 150 students. And are those full-time teachers, part-time teachers? Maybe about a little under half of our teachers, so about eight or nine are full-time and some of those are also administrators, and then the rest are part-time. 
it actually made more like 10 to 12 or full-time, and the rest are part-time. So full-time for us, we're a hybrid school. So full-time for us means you come all four mornings, 7.45 to 12.30, and you teach the majority of the class periods, all four mornings of our schedule. And then part-time is any variation of teaching one class to teaching maybe just two classes or maybe two mornings a week, all the class hours. So all of our administrators are full-time, and all of our administrators also teach a pretty heavy load, including me, whatever our interests are, wherever our gifts are, and perhaps wherever the need is within the academy for any given year. So lots of hybrid homeschools structure themselves where a child would attend for an entire school day. So they might go Tuesday, Thursday, or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or maybe just one day a week. You all do four sort of half days. What was the logic, or what was the uh, logic as soon as we started talking about these things? That's the word that popped into my mind when I hear classical (laughs) education. But um, what, what was the reasoning behind doing the four half days as your schedule? We started with two mornings a week was originally our class schedule. So the logic school, which is 7 and 8, they would come on Monday, Wednesday. And then the rhetoric school, which is 9th through 12th, would come on Tuesday, Thursday. And as we grew, our board did ask the question, do we want to expand to the other two mornings or do we want to expand to the afternoon? And we realized that the consistency of certain classes each morning we liked better than having those long stretches of a whole day off. The other thing we realized was the facilities where we were meeting, they preferred us being there four mornings a week rather than stretching out into the afternoon and going over the lunch hour, right, which brings all new questions and and logistical, practical things to consider. And so when we began to expand our course offerings, and we began to expand the grades that we offered. We really sat down, and this is about our third year at the time. We did about five different schedules. <laughs> and we said, this one makes more practical sense, or you know, this one, even for insurance purposes sometimes, right? Like the insurance company might require this in terms of the facilities that we use. Or you know, the church might just say, hey, we, we actually on a Wednesday afternoon need to set up, and so we need to have access to the classrooms. We found that it was a cleaner, neater schedule. We also found teaching-wise, it was more consistent for our instructors to have afternoon employment if they wanted. So it seemed easier for instructors if they wanted additional employment to go seek that and say, hey, I'm free after one, right, every day, rather than having these alternate full days to be a part of whatever they're doing. And so all of those together, most of it was just practical. Some of it was a little bit philosophical in the sense of, again, the consistency of math every day. (laughs) Sure. Or the consistency of just school culture every morning, four mornings a week, was a better option than not. I also think we wanted to be aware of the families we were serving. And that's important, to be aware of your city and the, the people who are showing up to partner with your academy. And so that was another factor is what would parents want? Would parents want to drop a student off two or three days a week and leave them all day? Or would parents rather show up four mornings a week but pick up at 1230? And we found that the latter was more preferred. 
and so it's worked out great. It's the it's the schedule that I encourage any hybrid school that I help get started. It's the schedule that I encourage them to do. But I'm sure there might be other factors to consider regarding class days and how long you stretch a school day into the afternoon. And what grades do you serve now? We are first through twelfth grade. And I I saw on your website you divide those grades into. I believe three groups, the grammar school, the logic school, and the rhetoric school. Could you maybe talk about each of those and what they're trying to accomplish? So one of the key essays that the current classical movement has utilized in its philosophy and structure is an essay called The Lost Tools of Learning by Dorothy Sayers. Sayers is best known as a writer of detective fiction, English author in the mid-20th century. And she delivered a paper, an essay called The Lost Tools of Learning. And in that, her argument, at least at the time for the English academic structure and the English grade schools, was that there's this whole, there's this whole history of educational philosophy and practice that has been neglected. Now, of course, this is in the mid-1900s. So fast forward and you ask the question, well, what else might we be missing right now? So in this essay, she puts forth the distinction of what's called the trivium. So the trivium was a term that was used in the Middle Ages to reference three of the seven liberal arts, or the artus liberalis. There are seven. Three of them are called the trivium. The other four are called the quadrivium. So in this particular essay, Sayers goes into the details of the trivium, and she calls them, well, they've been called this for a long time, but she reiterates that they are grammar, logic, and rhetoric. What she does that's peculiar that many in this movement have picked up upon is she takes those subjects or she she takes those academic pursuits and she turns them into stages of development. So she articulates that not only is there a a grammar and a a logic and a rhetoric to every subject, right? So if, if I want to learn anatomy, there's a grammar to anatomy and physiology, right? There's vocabulary, there's the nuts and bolts of the subject. The logic to something like anatomy would be, why does the body work that way, right? What's the synthesis of these components I just learned? And then the rhetoric is more of the expression or the pursuit of what's called the poetic stage of maybe articulating the homeostasis of that particular aspect of the body, that system, and then how to fix it if it's broken. There's something more creative in the poetic or rhetoric stage. So Sayers articulates that these three portions of the trivium are actually stages of development. And so there are certain things that happen in the grammar stage to a child. For example, the memory. The child's memory is an incredible thing. (laughs) The grammar stage is a mimetic stage. They imitate. Children, you just watch children, they imitate In the early years, they imitate for speech, they imitate for facial expressions, they imitate mood and emotions. So she divides these up, and what's happened the past 30 years, as this essay has become pretty central to many in the classical Christian movement, most schools divide up their grade levels, not elementary, middle, high school, but grammar stage, logic stage, and rhetoric stage. And what that communicates to the teachers and to the parents and to the students is that there are pedagogical distinctions that ought to be made when a student is learning anything because of their frame. Dorothy Sayers called it teaching with the grain, (laughs) right? Like when you cut a piece of wood, you want to cut with the grain. 
you want to teach with the grain. And so her pattern was, was taking the trivium and, and overlaying that on the developmental stage of a child. And it's true. I, I think I've, not to go too much into this, but I, I, I've most certainly seen this too. We hear parents you know, talk about their middle schooler or their, their teenager arguing. And so we instruct our parents, you know, it's not, a, it's not a healthy thing to tell your children not to argue with you. Because an argument is a, by nature a great thing. What we should teach them is how to argue well or how to respectfully argue with authority. That's a different thing than telling a child not to argue. But we want our students to argue. We want them to learn to articulate reasonable explanations and logical conclusions. But we want them to do it with virtue. And we want them to do it well in whatever setting that they're in. It's my understanding of the data that classical education is growing across the country. Why do you think that is? I think a few things are happening I can speak from a religious standpoint, and then I'll speak from a non-religious standpoint. When you see classical education coupled with religious convictions, that's growing significantly because you have primarily a a Christian base or a Christian sector of culture of population who are asking the question, what does it mean to raise these students— according to our theology and what we believe about them. (laughs) And so, for example, if I look at my daughters and I say, I want my daughters to be articulate, well-spoken, intelligent, and wise women, well, how do I get there? How do I do that, right? It's important that they love their neighbor and they love God by having these virtues. Well, we all believe that education is important in the formation of those things, but how do I do that? So what's happening is there's a religious foundation that's really undergirding the choice to be classical. A classical, though, is not distinctly Christian in its, in its historical origins. And so the, the, non, the non-religious part of this is there are plenty of charter schools popping up that are non-religious in nature, not distinctly Christian in nature, and yet having classical convictions. And the, the reason for that is it's a very practical argument. Right. It's, it's what one author called secular literary humanism. Right. Sure. It's saying man matters. Certain things within mankind matter. And usually that argument is a political argument, like we see in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Right. Why do we need to teach our, our children to be good rhetoricians? Well, because of the disability of their souls and the health of the, the state and, you know, those sort of things. Well, those arguments are true. Right. Those arguments are actually important. But... Obviously, from, from my perspective on those, they stop short, but they're still there, and the results are there. And what I mean by that is, it doesn't take a long time to do a little bit of digging and realize that the college readiness of these classical schools, or the, the students going to these classical schools, is off the charts, and their test scores are off the charts, and their, you know, how much professors enjoy these students is, you know, I hear stories all the time of professors at colleges and universities who are getting classically trained students and just enjoying their emotional maturity and their the virtue they bring to the classroom and their ability to shake a professor's hand and look them in the eye. So I think there's definitely a pragmatic aspect to it, which a lot of charter schools are picking up on. And right, if I've got billions of dollars and I'm an educational investor, I'm looking at what's working. And not just that, but I'm, <laughs> I'm realizing that there's 3,500 years of history here that we ought to consider for what humans are at least from a deeply Western 
culture standpoint. Again, there are those two divides in terms of what makes classical appealing, right? What makes looking back into tradition appealing. You mentioned there are some classical charter schools that are starting and growing, the Great Hearts Network and others that are, you know, some of them, they just, you know, they have waiting lists that are hundreds of students long. Either your experience in classical education or in this kind of hybrid homeschooling model, have you learned lessons that you think would be applicable to the more traditional schooling sector, whether that's traditional public schools or public charter schools or traditional private schools? Yeah, for sure. Perhaps one of the first things I would say is children. (laughs) Children are more fully human than we give them credit for. I think if I were to speak, it's sort of like a baseline you know, where can we all sort of understand, get along, and I can convince you at least of some early stages to try to persuade you in this direction. (laughs) Obviously, I'm, you know, convinced of it. I think I would start there. Children are more fully human than we realize. And when we try to use children in our manipulative game, whether it's some sort of corporate game that we're a part of in adulthood, or some political game that we're a part of in adulthood, they feel it, and they know it, and that will come back on our future generations in a most heinous way. So I think that's a big one. We ought to have a lot more trepidation, quite frankly, and and care for what I would say are eternal beings placed in our care. That's a real big one. I think education has gotten, in many ways, Education has gone off the rails in terms of the corporate pressure, the financial pressure, the political pressure, the social pressure that's placed on certain institutions. And, and while I am sympathetic to that, because I, I, I understand the, the spirit of the times, I also think that intelligent adults have a responsibility to push against that real hard. And that means making sacrifices. So I think it's a big one. That would be a big one. And I think that would really speak to educators who genuinely want to do right by the students and yet don't have another model and feel a lot of pressure from parents who perhaps are not well-educated on these issues and politicians who perhaps have, have their own agendas. Perhaps another lesson I would say is we have the same responsibility toward our instructors to create a platform and create a context by which they can fulfill their vocation. And that means a lot more than we currently allow. And so what I mean by that is looking at our instructors as scholars, looking at our instructors as those who have been called to learn, called to be lifelong learners, called to sacrifice in order to teach and to form the next generation. So the implication from that or the, the consequence from that would be what then are those virtues that we need to look at very carefully that we've neglected in our students and in our instructors. And is there a school structure? Is there a curriculum, right? Is there a certain vocabulary we've neglected in contemporary education that we ought to recover? And of course, my, you know, my answer is yes, there, there's a whole host of things. So I think those are big ones. And I'm sure if I thought about this for a while, I would probably have 12 more. <laughs> sure. So as a kind of closing question, I'd ask you to maybe look to the future. What do you think the next year or three years or five years holds for your school? I look at Baton Rouge as a peculiar place. I can see one or two things happening. I can see Sequitur maintaining its current size and its current structure and being very effective doing that 
and working from that place of efficiency and basic gratitude to help launch other schools in the state, which we're currently in the midst of, of doing. I could also see the bottom falling out of some of the educational uh, institutions in Baton Rouge and seeing a pretty big influx of students coming from conventional model private schools or families really taking the time to assess the various problems, big problems in the uh, public school system down here and seeing a pretty strong influx the next five years of new families. Neither of those would surprise me. Neither of those would surprise me. Baton Rouge is a capital city in the south on the river with a major academic state institution, you know, in its in its backyard. And so uh, both of those are possible. Both of those, I, I think a lot of that's going to depend on how courageous parents are willing to be to ask hard questions and to think well and to consider that there's, <laughs> there's a, a different path than perhaps the deep one into which their feet have been for a couple of generations. That, that's a hard thing, I think, for for folks in Louisiana who love their culture and love their heritage and you know, love of all the things that are that are really set around us to begin asking sort of the more analytical or, or philosophical questions. <laughs> Socrates once said that the, the unexamined life is not worth living, and it's a it's a tough thing to get folks in this area at least to ask a philosophical or examining type questions. But I think if that were to happen, and there's a, a real opportunity for us to to push in that direction. We could see some real interest, not just a hybrid schooling, but in, in class education. So that would be great to see. You know, we take it one step at a time, and we care for the folks who show up, and they're at our doorstep. And uh, you know, the other folks who show up who want to start schools across the, the state or across the U.S., we offer whatever advice we can give. Well, Brian Daigle of Sequitur Classical Academy, thank you so much for joining us on the Cool Schools podcast. Of course. Thank you so much, and thanks for the work that you guys do. Well, that was a really interesting, thought-provoking conversation. I know we've had lots of schools, classical schools and hybrid schools featured on the podcast, but it's cool to see someone think really deeply about both of those. I know something that Brian said that I think is going to stick with me is that idea that children are more fully human than we give them credit for. And I think I, I agree with him on that and also realize how frequently we do children a disservice when, as he sort of said, we see them as sort of pawns and games that we have or tools that we use or want to use to advance some adult agenda that we have or not putting sort of in the focus of their development, helping them become fully alive, thinking, feeling human beings. So I don't know, something's going to stick in my in my head, hopefully something else in that podcast stuck in yours. There was a lot to chew on there. So I really appreciate Brian taking the time and digging into these deep issues. As always, subscribe to our podcast. If you want to hear more Cool Schools interviews or the other podcasts that we offer, please make sure to subscribe. You can always listen on our SoundCloud page, but it's 2020. Subscribe. It'll show up right into your pocket. iPhone, Android, we're not making any judgments here, but you can listen to them. It all spends the same. Yeah, so they all sound the same regardless of the platform. Also, you can dance your way over to www.edchoice.org. Sign up for our email list. Lots of great content that's available there. And my last and final request, always if you know a cool school in your neck of the woods, 
Maybe you have a child that attends a cool school, a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, the child of your greatest enemy. I don't know. I don't know how you know these children. But if they are in a cool school, please let me know. I'd love to talk to the person that's leading it and try and tease out some of those lessons that can apply to schools across the country. Thanks so much for joining us, and I can't wait to talk with you all again as I profile another cool school.